year, whenever we were in Advent, we did four weeks from Isaiah, uh, and it was entitled Hope in Dark Times. And Linda and Ashley and I had a chat a few weeks ago and decided uh, that we'd go back, that there's plenty of Isaiah left, uh, and that's where we're headed for the next, the next four weeks, the next four messages. Um, so I'm going to start off today, and I'll be... Initially, I'll be in Isaiah 66, but I'm, I'm going to sort of float around a wee bit and end up in Isaiah 57 via, via John's gospel. So, listen, Isaiah is rich. It's rich. And I think you're going to be encouraged over the next few weeks and you'll be encouraged uh, this morning, I hope, as we, as we go through these things. So I basically just sat a few weeks ago and read... Uh, the second half of Isaiah and highlighted things as I went along that I just felt God stirring and this is where I've ended up. Isaiah 66 verse 1 to start us off. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? And where will my resting place be? Do you want to experience more of the presence of God? Yes. (laughs) The, The indwelling, the close, intimate presence of God. And there are lots of things that we do sometimes as Christians to try to muster up a sense of his presence. To try to somehow work our way into the presence of God. And the question that I have this morning is what sort of place will he dwell? Where will we find his presence? Where is it that he comes and says, I am going to dwell there. That is the place where my presence will be found. You see, the majesty and the magnitude of God that we read about in in Isaiah and in in here in 66.1, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. How could any house, how could any structure, any building, anything that we could ever make actually accommodate God? Nothing that we could, could do could, 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 could contain him, could allow him to, to dwell and say, that is where I am and I am nowhere else. He may have chosen in the Old Testament to display his presence in the tabernacle. And in the temple. But nobody ever thought that those structures actually could contain him. And in fact whenever Solomon dedicated the temple that he built. He he in probably in frustration maybe laughing at the towards the end of the project. He says will God really dwell on earth? The heavens even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. Solomon realizes that it's a real problem, a real dilemma trying to create a place where God can dwell. And it's a question that doesn't go away as you move into the New Testament. This, this question that Isaiah has of, of where will God dwell, where will his house be? Whenever we get into John chapter 1, I always reckon that the gospel writers are very, very careful about how they structure their, their work how they put it together. And I'm sure John thought very carefully about what what will be the first words that Jesus says in my gospel. What will be the first thing that will come out of his mouth? Uh, What will be the first conversation, the first interaction that he has? And in John 1, the first interaction is in verses 37 uh, and following. 
And two disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and Jesus turns and he sees them and he says to them, what do you want? That's his first words in John. Or, you know, what are you seeking? And whenever he says to them, what do you want? They say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Where are you staying? And literally, when you sort of dive into that little question, what what it means is, where do you dwell? The same question that God posed to Isaiah, the same question that Solomon wrestled with, where on earth can this majestic God actually dwell? And it's there subtly as John begins his gospel where these guys come to Jesus and say, where do you dwell? It is, it's the Greek word meno, and it's one of John's favorite words. It comes up again and again. It's sometimes translated dwell. It's sometimes translated abide. For example, in, in John 14, you, you get it particularly in verses 13, or sorry, chapters 13 to 17 of John. That night of the Lord's Supper and, and the washing of the feet, and then Jesus going to his arrest, and he talks to the disciples at length because they're worried that he's leaving. And therefore, he gives them this discourse, and over and over and over again, you get this word abide, dwell. You get it repeatedly throughout those chapters because they are fearful of his departure. And he says in 14, 16, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. That's that same word, meno, where do you abide? Where do you dwell? And again, in chapter 15, famously in that passage where Jesus declares himself to be the true vine, we get it over and over again. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. And if you're wondering why all the ye's are there, it's because the King James Version just catches that word abide better than than some of the, the modern versions that we're more used to. So we have this idea, this question, God, where do you dwell? Where do you abide? It is this sense of where is your presence that we can come close to you, that we can share life with you. Where can we experience that? Should we go to another service? Should we go to multiple services? Should we go to every event that's on and hope that we will experience the presence of God somewhere, the dwelling of God? Should we sing louder? Should we sing longer? Uh, Should we sing so much that we can hardly talk for two or three days afterwards? Because surely if we do all that, all that effort will somehow bring the dwelling of God. Should we serve more? Should we burn ourselves out as Christians serving here, there and everywhere, doing all these things? And maybe God will then grace us with his presence. How, God, can we twist your arm in order to force your dwelling to, to come, your abiding But all of that is paganism. That idea that we do things to actually force God to dwell with us, that's a pagan idea. That's the prophets of Baal in the altar or on the altar at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, cutting themselves, shouting and screaming and dancing around on the altar, trying to get Baal to show up. It's paganism. We can't muster up God's dwelling by doing those things that I just mentioned. So what size would this dwelling need to be? Um, 
Isaiah in, in 57, which is where we're going to linger for, for the rest of this morning, Isaiah 57, there's a sense of preparation in verse 14. It will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. That's very similar to Isaiah 40, where there's a, a preparing of a road for God to come to his people. This is a preparing of a road for the people to, to come to God. And there's talk of building, there's talk of construction. And I can imagine some builders must find some clients really difficult to work with. I'm sure we could get some insights on, on, on this from, from uh, uh, he who shall not be mentioned. <laughs> but yeah, some, some, some builders and some contractors and construction workers and people who work on houses uh, for, for clients probably find some of those clients really quite demanding. Would that be the case? Yeah, okay. Um, really, really quite demanding because they, they want perfection for their dream home. Everything has got to be exactly right. It's good to have high standards and expectations, but some people just demand an unattainable level of meticulous detail. And I can imagine an architect saying to a builder, I've drawn up some plans for these people and I'm wondering, would you build a home for them? They're a bit demanding. Perfectionists regarding tiny details, unreasonable expectations of when a project should be complete, changing their minds all the time, and they want everything done for nothing. Do you want to take this on? And I can imagine the builder saying, no, I'd rather not work with clients like that. Imagine someone trying to build a dwelling for God. And they come to the architect who has designed the dwelling and, and the, the builder asks the architect, well, what's your client like that we're building this house for? And in Isaiah 57, 15, we read that the client is high and he is exalted or lofty, as some of your translations might say. And he lives forever. And I can imagine the builder starting to get just a wee bit twitchy about trying to create a dwelling place for such a client to live in. I'm not sure about this one. And the, and the builder maybe say to the architect, okay, so he's high and he's exalted and he lives forever. Might be quite a needy, demanding client. What's his name? And he goes on to say, his name is Holy. And you're like, okay, well, that's, that's fantastic. This, this, this might be a big challenge to produce somewhere for this sort of a person to live in. The start of Isaiah 57, 15 has has what's called a stacking, where you've just got all of these statements created to build this sense of majesty, magnitude, glory of God. He's high, he's exalted, he lives forever, and his name is holy. How on earth do you make a dwelling place for someone like that? The first person to try was no less than King David, the greatest king of Israel. And he comes to his interview to be the builder for God, the client who wants a house. And he's got the desire to do it. And he's got the resources to do it. He's got the heart for it. He's got the people to do it. And, I, and this is probably something that wouldn't happen in a normal, normal sort of builder-client conversation. But God, the, the, the client, says to David, the prospective builder, what's your character like? <laughs> what sort of a person are you? Have you ever been in a fight? Have you ever cheated on your wife? And, and he finds that David doesn't get the gig. David's told, you've got blood on your hands. You're a violent man. You're not building a house for me. 
So David doesn't, doesn't get to do that. This is how hard it is to create a dwelling place for God. David is rejected and told, you're not going to do it. The second guy comes along for the job and it's Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the richest man who ever lived. And he has time on his hands because the nation is at peace. He has contact with all the kings of all the surrounding nations, pretty much because he has slept with all their daughters. And he can get all the resources he needs. And he's the man who gets the job. But at the end of it, he says, this is impossible. Who can build a dwelling place for God? And you're, the, the builder might, might then go to, to the client or go to the architect and say, well, can you show me where your client currently lives? You want me to build a new house for this guy? Can you show me where he lives at the minute? And Isaiah 57, 15 goes on to say, I live in a high and holy place. You're like, well, that's just great. Everything about this feels distant. Do you want to enjoy the presence of God more? He seems miles away. Everything is big. Everything is grand. Everything is, is you know, where is the high and holy place? Can we get there? Elon Musk is probably at work trying to design a rocket that will take us to the high and holy place where we can see this dwelling where God lives. How can we possibly do this? If you're desperate for the presence of God, it all seems out of reach. And you can look at at this first part of verse 15 and think, goodness, I can never experience the dwelling of God. I can never experience the close, intimate presence of God. Some really special Christians might might do that. They might encounter, they might break through to this high and holy place. A limited number might be able to do it, but not me. So are you getting the point that God is asking the question in Isaiah and then the disciples come and ask it of Jesus in John, where do you dwell? We want to know where you dwell so we can be with you. So we can experience your presence, encounter who you are. And we see the problems of of a dwelling place for God that David had, that Solomon had, that anyone has when it comes to the, the God who's described in Isaiah 57, 15. But then there's one of the most glorious statements that you get in your entire Bible in the second part of Isaiah 57, 15. And I really want this. To, to bless you as we just linger on this sort of half a verse for a few minutes. Because after God says, I live in a high and holy place, he then says, but also, there's another place where I dwell. Another place where you will find me, where you will encounter my presence. And that place is with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. And all of a sudden, we're starting to think, maybe we fit, we fit the bill. <laughs> maybe we fit the job description. We can't go to the high and holy place. We're blown away by the magnitude of the one that we want to create a dwelling place for. But he's just told us that he dwells with the one who is contrite and who is lowly in spirit. What, what are these two things? Because if we can cultivate these two things, we'll experience the presence of God. If we just try to sing louder, go to more meetings, do more service, 
We might not encounter the presence of God. But here's a biblical promise. God dwells with this sort of person and this sort of people. And the, the two things, the two words that are used here are the words contrite and lowly. Not words really much in common usage. Contrite, if you look up a modern English dictionary, contrite means remorse over something that you've done that you're acknowledging that it was wrong. That is not even close <laughs> to what the word here means in Hebrew. So if I'm contrite about something, I realize I've blown it, I've dropped the ball, I've, I've been ignorant, I've done something wrong, and I'm feeling remorseful about it, according to the modern usage. No, not the meaning of the original word. The original word means, and you can look this up on wonderful sites like Blue Letter Bible, it means crushed. God dwells with the crushed. The, the word, if you, if you look up that, the, the sort of background of that contrite word from, from Latin or, and, you know, into Old English, it's the idea of rubbing things together so that one of them will grind the other one down. Grinding something, crushing it down to, to a powder. In the chemistry lab, we have this thing called a, a mortar and pestle. And the mortar is like a little bowl and the pestle is a wee porcelain or ceramic uh, tool that you then use to crush what's in the bowl. You might have one in the kitchen. You might use it to make pesto. The word pesto means crushed. Pestle, pesto means crushing. And the sense here that the one who is contrite is the one who has been crushed. Has 2023 crushed anybody? Have you experienced crushing? The image that came to my mind, which is a bit stupid when I thought about this, was from the world of wrestling, which is not a world that I'm famous with at all, thankfully. Uh, I did, you know, for those of you of a certain age, I did meet Big Daddy. Anybody ever even know, do you know Big Daddy? Anybody? Nobody? Yeah, yeah Big Daddy. When wrestlers were, were not all buff and fit like bodybuilders, <laughs> Big Daddy was, was the man. And uh, I remember going to see Big Daddy when I was a child on holidays. <laughs> uh, but I'm thinking of Big Daddy. And, and across his, his big belly, he has got 2023 written with, a, with a, like a black sharpie. He is representative of 2023. And he is doing a move on you that in wrestling is referred to as a top rope splash. Which means Big Daddy has climbed up, he's gone to the corner of the ring and he's climbed up to the top turnbuckle, I think is the official term. And he's standing, now Big Daddy couldn't have done this, but our modern wrestlers could do it. He's standing, I don't know if you've ever witnessed this, it's the maddest looking thing. <laughs> and some of them flip around in midair and then land on you with their, with their elbow. But, but this guy jumps off the corner, the top turnbuckle. Uh, you're on the mat, you are already down because 2023, a few things have happened that have meant you're just, you're on the ground and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to sort of get your bearings and, and waking yourself up and pull yourself up. And then this comes slapping down on you and just crushes you. That's the picture that came to mind when I thought about 2023 crushing people. And some of you, as silly as the image is, some of you have experienced crushing this year. You've already been on the mat. You've already took a few knocks. And then suddenly this huge thing from a great height comes dropping onto you and crushes you, breaks you. Lots of us have been crushed 
this year for various reasons. And that can cause us sometimes to think of ourselves as being failures. This, this great crushing, these awful things are happening to me. I'm a failure. I'm not a holy enough person, not righteous enough. I'm not walking with God close enough. And, and this crushing comes and, and I feel flattened on the mat and just a million miles away from God because of these crushing experiences. But it's quite the opposite. In your crushing, in your current position on the mat with Big Daddy on top of you, <laughs> flattening you, I have good news for you. And, and the news is God dwells with the crushed. God's in the housing market. God is house hunting. And as he sits down with his estate agent, one of the criteria that he gives the estate agent, he doesn't say it has to be a two-story, it has to have a garage, it has to have a big lawn. He says, it's got to be crushed. That's one, of my, that's one of my essential criteria for a place where I will dwell. I will dwell with those who have been crushed. And the crushing that hurts and that causes you to feel maybe distant from God, causes you to question your own life and your own character and why these things have happened to you, that crushing has actually made you into the perfect place where God can dwell. As he looks over the sea of humanity and he sees his people who have been crushed by the experiences of 2023, he says, I can dwell there. I can man you want my presence I can manifest my presence there because that person is contrite that person has been ground down and if 2023 has ground you down I have good news you're in the perfect place to experience the deep abiding dwelling presence of God the the contrite the crushing that's beyond my control and it's beyond your control you can't make that happen. But we need to beware of the instinct to run away from crushing experiences when they do happen. You don't ask for it. If you've been around any length of time, you will know that crushing experiences will be able to find you. <laughs> you don't have to go looking for them. You don't ask for it. You don't want it. You don't enjoy it. But you know now, if you didn't know before, that it sets you up for God to come close and to dwell intimately. I will dwell with the one who is crushed. And the other criteria that, that he has for, for where he will dwell is with the lowly, which simply means the humble. The humble. He will dwell with those who are humble. In, in verse 15 of Isaiah 57, God is the one who is high. He's the one who is exalted. He's the one who lives in a high and holy place. If we try to make ourselves high, if we try to exalt ourselves, he's not dwelling with us. He's the high one. He's the exalted one. We, if we try to, to take on that same position, we find ourselves actually being opposed by God. James says in 4.6 that God opposes the proud. Those who try to set themselves up as high. Those who try to exalt themselves. It's a very strong term for the, for the scriptures to say God is opposed to a certain type of people. But he's opposed to the proud. 
And one of the things, and it's a bee in my bonnet, and I have mentioned it before, is I think that one of the, one of the most dangerous things in the church in Northern Ireland at the minute is the pride and arrogance that is found in it. And I see it, and I don't limit it to this, but I see it particularly in wider church, bigger picture, young men. Proud and arrogant. And God says, I oppose the proud. It is abhorrent and it's repulsive. And and those who are crushed, those who are lowly, and it was actually amazing standing at at a big long queue on Friday night and just sort of parking myself in one place the whole time, now and again moving so Mr. Tato could get past and get back again. I'm just looking into all of their eyes and into all of their faces and thinking, I wonder what your story is. I wonder what your story is. I wonder what's crushing you. And those people may at some stage want to know where God dwells because they may want to experience the dwelling and the, the, the presence of God. But as they come close to the church, they see this abhorrent, repulsive arrogance that causes them to turn away and say, I'm not going in there. Don't want to be around people like that. God dwells with, he shows favour to the humble. He opposes the proud and shows favour to the humble. This is, is most sort of perfectly uh, displayed in, in Isaiah 14 where we've got a guy called Lucifer. And we read about, how, how have you fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will make myself like the most high. The words of, of Lucifer. And then the, the, these words are sort of then sort of projected on, onto Satan as the one who tried to elevate himself to the same position as God and found himself cast down because the, pr- the proud, those who exalt themselves, cannot, it's just mutually exclusive. They cannot experience the dwelling presence of God. He will not dwell with the proud. He will dwell with the humble. And the wonder of the incarnation that we celebrate in, in, in December and, and you're maybe doing Advent readers and various different things. The wonder of it all is when you read Luke's story of, of the birth of Jesus, every single player in the story is humble. Every one of them. Mary, Joseph and Elizabeth and Zachariah and Simeon and Anna. I've actually found a Christmas song that mentions Simeon and I'm so proud of that. <laughs> all humble whenever God chose in that wonderful moment to become flesh and dwell among us it was all in among humble people and unlike the crushing this is my responsibility I can't set myself up for crushing I can't say right God I feel like today will be a good day I feel like I'm ready for, for, for a crushing let it, let it no I, can't, I, don't, I don't control the, the crushing aspect of this, but I do control the humility. The Bible says again and again and again, humble yourself. That's something I can do. Those who are crushed, which is lots of you I know, those who are crushed and those who humble themselves 
our perfect dwelling place for the presence of God. And whenever God comes, just to finish out the verse, whenever God comes, he, uh, he, he does something or he treats you like something that, uh, there, there's, a term, there's, a, there's a term that we didn't really use that much in Northern Ireland until we had the cultural phenomenon that was frozen. And a guy walked into all our lives called Christoph. Christoph, isn't that right? Yeah, Christoph. Um, and Christoph is described in a song that's going to be in your head all afternoon, if you know it, uh, as a fixer-upper. And a fixer-upper, in, in more in American sort of real estate terms, a fixer-upper is, is a house that needs a bit of work. Right? It's got promise, but it needs, it needs renovated. It needs made new. It needs some, some work done on it. And God comes and, and he is a renovator. He doesn't just come and dwell in this crushed, lowly house. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't just leave it as it, as it is. Whenever he comes, we, we see what he does. I, I, I dwell with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive. Oh, this is good. To revive the spirit of the lowly. And to revive the heart of the contrite. He doesn't just rock up to the fixer-upper and leave it with, with a, a few squeaky doors and, and window frames that are rotten a bit and, and leaks in the roof or whatever. He, he said, I'm going to change this place. I'm going to revive. Once you accept the crushing and you don't run from it and, and you humble yourself, along comes the, the dwelling presence of God to do some renovations. To do some restoration. And the word literally is to do some revival. And revival means to bring to life again. It's most famously used in Ezekiel 37.5. Where God says to the dry bones. My, my breath will come into you. My spirit will come into you. And you will live. It's that same word to do with revival. To make alive again. It's also used in a building context and I never noticed this before, but in Nehemiah 4, whenever the critics come to criticize Nehemiah for the, the, the building project that he's involved in, which is not the temple, it's walls. Uh, eventually the temple will be built as well. But uh, they, they say to him, can you bring these stones back to life? Can you revive these stones? This term revival used in the sense of building. Revive the spirit of the lowly. In, in Hebrew, that word spirit is the same as the word for breath and the word for wind. When I was young playing football, there was a particularly, particular injury that I was prone to uh, over and over again. And it wasn't, it wasn't a torn hamstring. It wasn't cruciate ligament. It wasn't uh, you know, broken bones. It was getting winded. <laughs> Did, have you experienced being winded playing football where you're just like, why does this keep happening to me? <laughs> and you're just, when you, when you get whopped right in the gut with a ball, and, and some people talk about being winded, some people say it knocked, knocked the wind out of you, and you can't breathe really sort of properly for a few seconds, and you get a bit panicky because you're not able, do you know what I'm talking about yet? Because, you know, look, you look a wee bit blank. Uh, this used to just happen to me with, with alarming regularity. The, the target area must have been too big back in those days. But anyway, I would, I would just get winded. And that hateful feeling of gasping for breath because you've took an impact in the gut. And it has knocked the spirit. It's knocked the ruach, the, the wind, the breath out of you. 
and you're gasping for breath and you're panicking a wee bit because of the feeling of not being able to get a breath. Along comes God and he, he, he comes to you in whatever has crushed you. Big Daddy landed on you and he's knocked the wind out of you. And whatever it is that has crushed you and winded you, he comes and he says, I'm here to revive your spirit. I'm here to put breath back into you again. My breath. My breath. He revives your spirit. It's a beautiful verse, Isaiah 57, 15. And I would just meditate on it, ponder it for a day or two, keep it in your mind. This, this picture of the, the, the incredible magnitude and glory of God and the dilemma, where is he going to live? And he says, I live with you. <laughs> you who are crushed, you who are humble. And we go back to Jesus those disciples came to him and said, where do you dwell? And he has a beautiful response for them. In, in verse 39 of John 1, come and you will see. And it's so much more. Just When you're reading the Gospels, it's, so, it's not just a, oh, Jesus said that and somebody wrote it down and put it in. No, no, no. This is John's huge invitation for anyone reading his book. Come and see where God dwells. Come and see the sort of place and the sort of person where he will dwell. And he takes you, John then takes you on a journey with Jesus to see the sort of people that Jesus abides with. He abides with Nicodemus, who has been crushed by religion in John 3. He abides with a Samaritan woman in John 4, who has been crushed by relationships, abusive people. He abides with a guy at a pool who's been crushed by his poor health. He abides with a blind man in John 9 who's been crushed by accusations that he or his parents must be sinners for him to actually be this way. He abides with the sisters of Lazarus, Lazarus even, who have been crushed by grief. And he abides with Peter in John 21 who's been crushed by his failure. He keeps on coming to these crushed people. This is where I live. You want to see where I dwell? Come and see. I dwell with the crushed. I dwell with the lowly. And at the heart of our faith, and at the heart, the centerpiece of all of history, there is a cross where according to Isaiah, again in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The ultimate crushing fell on him so that we could enjoy the indwelling presence of God. And to take it to the communion table, the emblems that we have on the communion table, bread and wine, are both made from crushing. Bread is made by taking the grain, crushing the grain to get the flour, make the bread. The bread is a product of a crushing process. The wine from threshing and crushing the grapes, again, is the product of a crushing process. And we have these two emblems produced by crushing to represent Jesus, who was crushed for our iniquities. So if 2023 has done a top rope splash on you, knocked the wind out of you, God comes this morning and says, I dwell with people like that. And I'll revive your spirit. And I'll put the breath and the wind back. And the, the gasping will stop. 
and you'll get into a nice pattern of deep breathing in the spirit. Let's pray. I'm going to ask these guys to come up and play and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll break bread together.